Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. Well, it's great to see you this morning. We're going to get jumping into this immediately. Because <laughs> normally I've got five pages of notes, and today I've got ten. So, you know, <laughs> it's one of those, one of those weeks where uh, you listen fast, and I'll try to keep up. I remember... Um, hearing a story, and it was kind of funny because how we handle the Word of God is important. Amen? I mean, you don't pick a knife up out of the drawer without handling it carefully. Do you? You don't just reach into a drawer and grab a knife any which way. You certainly don't hand the knife off any which way. You handle it carefully. Why? Because if if you don't handle it carefully, you could get cut. You're not respecting the knife. You're not respecting what it potentially could do. Folks, when we talk about the Word of God, we talk about the infallible, inerrant Word of God, the Holy Word of God. We better know how to handle it. Last week, we looked at how to view it. We can trust that God's Word is God's Word, and we know that it is God's Word. And therefore, as a result, the question becomes, how do we handle it? Because if it's God's word, it ought to have an impact on us. We can't just uh, leave it laying around, so to speak, and ignore it. We tend to. We tend to. But we've got to do something with it. All right? There's no middle ground with the word of God. You've got you to handle it. You've got to deal with it. You've got to address it. Because if it truly is God's word, then it ought to have an impact in all of our lives. Amen? So how do we handle it? Uh, I heard a story of a guy... Uh, who decided he was down, needed a word from God. And I don't know if you've ever done this before. I actually have. Uh, uh, flick open the Bible and think, Lord, I need a word. I need something from you. <laughs> so this guy was kind of down, and he opened it up, and he so happened to open it right, and his eye went right to the passage where Judas went out and killed himself. <laughs> and he thought, you got to be kidding me. That can't be from God. So he said, I'm going to try this over again. And he opened it up again, and he went right to a verse, and it said, go and do likewise. <laughs> oh, mercy. That's not the way to handle the word of God, amen? I mean, that, we ought not do it that way. There's a right way. There's a wrong way. But unfortunately, a lot of times, uh, I, I fear that we've lost how to handle the Word of God. How do we translate it? How do we get into the Word to make sure that we're handling it accurately so that we are workmen that are not needing to be ashamed? We can stand firm on the Word because we know that it's God's Word. The question is, how do we handle God's Word? How do we recognize that what we have in our hands today is a copy? Understand that. But it's a phenomenal copy. When we talk about the infallibility, the inerrancy of the word of God, that God's word is without error, that God's word could not be in error because God cannot err. We're talking about what was originally written. We're talking about the original autographs. And from there, scribes and scholars through the ages have taken time to make sure that we have very, very accurate copies of God's word. And thank the Lord for that. 
I would suggest that it's not man's work, it's God's work. That this is God's word and therefore it's his work. In other words, he's the one who has made sure that his word has been kept intact and preserved through the ages. Man simply has recognized that. People recognize what is God's word, what is not. And we're going to look at certain tests when it comes to discerning. Is this really the inspired text, the writings of the Lord or from the Lord himself, or is this something else? I want to show you a little bit of a timeline in terms of the original manuscripts, the Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, The writing of Scripture took place probably uh, from about 1500 B.C. to about 100 A.D., all right, and the Gospels and, and the Epistles and the New Testament was written probably between 45 A.D. and 100 A.D., right in that range. So all this other is the, the compilation of the Old Testament. We looked at that a little bit last week, but I want to give you a bit of a timeline on this. Ezra, the great synagogue after the exile had taken place, and they came back into Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile, between the time period of 500 to 300 B.C., Uh, They began to work on putting all the Old Testament canon together. The Pentateuch and the the prophets and the prophecies and and the the Psalms and the Proverbs, they began to work on doing that. Ezra and these men, probably about 120 scribes, uh, began to do that because they had been decimated. They had been spread throughout the world. They had been taken into captivity Uh, all of their artifacts and the writings and different things like that. They wanted to make sure that they were preserved, and so they worked hard at that. Uh, The completion of the Old Testament canon probably was about 400 B.C., and it it stopped with the writing of Malachi. That's the last book of the Bible So in the Old Testament. So that began to show the completion of the Old Testament canon. You've probably heard of the LXX or the Septuagint. All that is is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Hebrew began to be lost, and some of the rabbis and scholars were very concerned about the people knowing the Word of God, so they translated the Old Testament into the Greek, the common language, so that people, even Jews themselves, would have the Old Testament. And we uh, can look at the LXX, we can look at the uh, Septuagint, as it's called, and recognize uh, that it's very close uh, when it comes to authenticity in terms of word for word uh, in helping us understand that the Old Testament and what it says, and it's able to be verified in so many ways using that tool. Uh, 250 B.C., helped establish the accuracy of these Old Testament texts. Uh, At the Council of Jamnia, they helped affirm the Old Testament canon in 90 AD. They all got together. They took all these different texts, and they began to put it together. It's interesting. You've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you've been to Israel, you've probably been uh, to Qumran, and you've seen where these were found, and you've probably been into Jerusalem where you get to see some of the Dead Sea Scrolls as they put them into a museum and and, uh, protect them. Uh, These scrolls dated back to 100 B.C., and they helped establish what's called the Masoretic Text. The Masoretic Text is what our Bible today, in terms of the Old Testament, is primarily founded on. They've done other work. There's been other archaeology. There's been other texts that have been found in order to strengthen it. But the Masoretic Text, which is the Old Testament text, was used primarily in the Middle Ages, and it's what we have today, and it's what our translation in the English primarily is of the Old Testament 
the New Testament was fixed in about 350 A.D. Now understand that the writing was finished by about 100 A.D., but the canon was affirmed about 250 years later. And the reason for that is simple. They, they were writing epistles. They were writing all kinds of different letters, and they were sending them to different areas, Ephesus and Philippi and Thessalonica and all the different things. And then there were copies of that. And so they began to formulate all this. The church did, and they began to put it all together. There were attacks on the word of God. And so they wanted to make sure that the word of God was uh, affirmed, that this canon of Scripture was affirmed. And so they began to take all those different pieces and they began to put them together and they compiled it. And the forefathers, our patriarchs in the faith, and the New Testament began to work very diligently at making sure uh, that what was Scripture was defined to be that. There were all kinds of other letters and religious writings that they did not put in as a part you might have heard of the Maccabees or even the Apocrypha. Some of those things were added in later by the Roman Catholic Church in response to the Reformation. Uh, they were not included in the original canon, and they should not be. Because very clearly, they are not in synthesis with the canon of Scripture. They have teachings in them that do not correlate with the canon. And we're going to look at that. There's all kinds of tests for that. This wasn't just done arbitrarily. This was done very methodically and systematically in order to recognize what God had given. You know of the Latin Vulgate by St. Jerome, translated the entire canon of the Old Testament and New Testament. That was used for probably about a 1,000 years. You've heard of the Wycliffe translation, which was about 1380 A.D. The Gutenberg's first printed Bible, the Gutenberg Press, in about 1456. Erasmus put the Greek New Testament together in print in 1516. Then we had Luther's German Bible uh, in the New Testament as well as in the Old Testament. Of course, you know the King James Bible, one of the most famous versions of it in 1611. I don't have time to go into the Great Bible or uh, Wycliffe's actual translation, Tyndale. Uh, men like John Huss who were killed because they wanted to make sure that people had the word of God in their hands, in their language, so that they could understand it. They could know God's will and they could know the Lord through the word of God. And they were persecuted and even killed for wanting to do that. And of course, our newer versions, such as the ASV or the RSV, the NASB, the NIV, I'm going to say it, the newly invented version, God bless the NIV. I love the NIV. Praise God. We have a rich heritage, folks. I'm amazed sometimes at how lightly we take what we hold in our hands. I really, and I say that about myself. People have suffered and died in order that we can be here today to be free to worship the Lord to hold a book in our hands, to study that word, the word of God, which in places throughout the world, it has been banned. It has been tried in every way to be stamped out. 
and people. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, on YouTube or if you've ever gotten on and you see uh, Chinese believers receiving just a, a copy of the New Testament for the first time and their response to it. It's indescribable how thankful, joyful they are. Jesus himself quoted from the Old Testament. Now, folks, that ought to tell us something, <laughs> right? Amen? It ought to let us in on something. I mean, if Jesus is quoting from the thing and actually calling it Scripture, I think we can look at the Old Testament and understand that it is the Word of God. He recognized it as such. In Luke chapter 24, verses 44 and 45 The Lord says to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me, and catch this, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand what? The scriptures. The scriptures. The word of God. What he's talking about is the law, he's talking about the prophets, he's talking about the wisdom literature, the Psalms and the Proverbs. And you can look at the Old Testament and you can break it down into those three groups. A lot of times it's broken into just two, the law and the prophets. Either way, the Old Testament was affirmed by the Lord to be scripture from God, authoritative It's been verified, as I said, by the LXX, the second century Old Testament manuscripts, the Dead Sea Scrolls, particularly the the, the, uh, Isaiah uh, is in its totality in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's unbelievable the work that scribes put in to making sure that the Old Testament was copied accurately. We can verify that. George Meisinger in his book on the canon of scripture says it this way, to sum up our 21st century Old Testament, which has been based mainly on 10th century manuscripts, the Masoretic text, whose accuracy is confirmed by the 4th century BC, before Christ, LXX manuscript, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, now is shown to be substantially the same as the 2nd century Old Testament Hebrew manuscript. In other words, it's accurate. We can trust it. It's verifiable. Praise God. The New Testament canon is phenomenal, and I want to spend a little bit of time on that because that's where we tend to dwell the most. The ultimate decisive test for whether something was canonical or not is inspiration. Is this inspired of God? Is this from God? And 2 Timothy 3.16 speaks to that. Scripture is inspired by God. It's not just something written by man. It's something that God has inspired. It's God-breathed. Therefore, it's inerrant. It's infallible, even to the very words. Even as the Lord says to every jot and tittle, it is eternal. It will not pass Away. Incredible. There are several tests that are used to to look and to see, is this epistle, this gospel, something that ought to be included in the canon? One of those tests are, are the writings apostolic? Did an apostle write this letter or this gospel? 
I mean, if Paul wrote it, he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, called to do so, and he had a special calling. Peter himself had a special calling. Not all the letters in Scripture or all the books in the New Testament are from apostles. But they needed to be at least somebody close to an apostle. Luke is an example of that. Luke clearly was with the apostle Paul all the time. They knew exactly who he is. They know everything about him. And so they're able to verify. Hebrews was accepted even though we don't know who the author is. Because it qualifies under some of the other tests that were looked at. Secondly, did a book under consideration enjoy widespread acceptance among the churches? Did the people of God at that time accept it as being infallible, inerrant, authoritative as the word of God, inspired from God himself? The apostles themselves commanded that their writings be passed around and read by all the churches. Did the churches do that? Is the gospel of Thomas, should that be included in the canon? What did the churches do with the gospel of Thomas? Did they pass it around? Did they read it in scripture? Did they recognize it as being inspired of God? No. So it was not included, and for other reasons, in the canon. Is it authentic? Is it a book under consideration? A record of fact? Does it say what it says and line up? accurately with history and the things that were taking place? Is it genuine in the sense it can be traced back to the author, time, and the events spoken of? Is there a line of testimony that we can take it back to the actual time of its writing? Can that be verified? The testimony of the second and following generations of Christians. These believers were 1,800 to 2,000 years nearer to the beginning and writing of everything than we are. So they were able to verify by interrogation, cross-examination, even the people who actually, or the leaders, that were eyewitnesses themselves. So we can rely upon them and the work that they did in order to verify the New Testament canon. Several tests for reliability of these New Testament books. I love this one, the time-lapse test. The time-lapse test. The time-lapse test simply shows that the New Testament has the best documentary evidence of all ancient literature. There's a couple examples, there's many of them that I could give. Julius Caesar wrote The Gallic War between 58 and 50 B.C., Today, only 10 manuscripts, good manuscripts, exist. The oldest manuscript is 900 years later than when Caesar actually wrote it. 900-year gap. And they look at the 10 copies that they got, and they go, yep, that's it. Verified. This is the book. Amen. That's a lot of faith. Livy wrote his Roman history between 59 B.C. and A.D. 17. 35 books survive out of the original 142 books. Only 20 of the 35 are in good shape. And only one can be dated as far back as the 4th century A.D. One. That means that a 400-year time lapse exists between just one of the original books and the time of writing, and yet it's verified. Yes, that is what Livy wrote. This is his Roman history. Folks, do, 
Do we realize how well attested to the New Testament is? Over 15,000 manuscripts. The time frame is absolutely so short in comparison to 900 years and 400 years. And there are plenty of examples of this. Within an absolute short period of time, the final documents were written probably about 100 in A.D. And we are verified by 350 A.D. Because they began to compile them all. And look at them all. A second test is the internal evidence test. Used to, is this really scripture? Is this really from the word of God? Should this letter or gospel, should this be included in the canon? And I like this test because it gives benefit of the doubt to the document itself, not to the critic. <laughs> not to the critic. People who don't want to believe in the word of God, they say, oh, it's not the word of God. Well, why not? Well, because, and they come up with some excuse, and you look at the document itself, and the document itself has internal evidence that is verifiable, that is absolute. Or the external evidence test. Do other historical materials confirm or deny the internal evidence? The answer is it confirms Sir William Ramsey, after years of archaeology and geographical investigation, states that the New Testament is very reliable. Why? Because he was able to look at all the different facts that are placed within canon, within the scripture, and verify them historically through archaeology and all the different geographical accounts that are given. It's amazing. Clearly, the External evidence tests can go to the early fathers as well because they confirm the testimony of the apostles. They knew the apostles, and they were able to say, yes, John actually went through that. Yes, Peter actually did this. Yes, this is what happened in the early church with Paul. They were able to confirm it. They knew the history. They recognized it. Let me give you three conclusions on this because I think this is so important. In our day when cynicism and doubt pervades. The lack of trust and authority is phenomenal throughout our country and churches. It's incredible. And I understand. But I think we ought to understand that the word of God is something we can stand on. We can be absolutely assured. And I don't know if you've heard of A.T. Robertson or not. I I probably fewer of you have even read him. (laughs) He's written some Greek stuff that, believe me, it's, it's off the chart. Uh, I studied with Spiro Zodiades, who knew Greek inside and out, and uh, English was really his second language. Greek was his first. I mean, he even looked at A.T. Robertson with awe because of the scholarship this man put into the Greek language in order for us to be able to handle Scripture because of the translation that we now have. A.T. Robertson estimated that New New Testament textual concerns have to do with only a thousandth part of the entire text, placing the accuracy of the New Testament text at 99.9%, the best known for any book from the ancient world. Incredible. 99.9%. Meisinger, in his book on the canon, states this, the using the normal criteria for evaluating ancient documents for their reliability, the New Testament passes with flying colors. We have every reason to trust its testimony to the historical and theological facts of Christianity. An unassailable reason does not exist for rejecting its testimony. And Norman Geisler, out of his book, Has the Bible Been Accurately Copied Down Through the Centuries?, states this, and I think this one really 
hopefully brings it home to each and every one of us. In summary, the vast number, early dates, and unmatched accuracy of the Old Testament and New Testament manuscript copies established the Bible's reliability well beyond that of any other ancient book. Its substantial message has been undiminished through the centuries, and its accuracy on even minor details has been confirmed. Thus... The Bible we hold in our hands today is a highly trustworthy copy of the original that came from the pens of the prophets and apostles. Did you catch that? It is a highly trustworthy copy of the original that came from the pens of the prophets and the apostles. Folks, what we hold today is as close to the original as you could get. And so we can stand on it. You know, when we talk about salvation and we talk about walking by faith in Christ, we talk about knowing the Lord, we talk about uh, walking and growing in Christ, we talk about sharing the gospel and with authority and absolute 100% belief telling people that what the word of God has to say is accurate and true. We can do that. We can walk in that. We can stand on the authority of of the word of God. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Peter writes this, We have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, the Word of God, is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit. That picture is of a small little boat in the midst of a rushing river. God is absolutely in control of this. The Lord is the one who inspired this. He used men to do it, over 40 of them. But what we hold in our hands today is an absolutely accurate copy of the original autographs of the Word of God. So how do we handle Scripture? If that's true and what we're holding in our hands today, maybe we're using it on our iPad or maybe on our cell phone, the question is, how do we handle it? Well, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, and by the way, it's important to note that it's 2 Timothy because this was the last letter that Paul wrote before he was martyred. In 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. And then he says this, Accurately handling the word of truth. Accurately handling the word of truth. In other words, there's an inaccurate way. We can do it by feelings. We can do it by assumptions. We can do it by all kinds of different ways. We can take verses out of their context. Tommy Ice, Thomas Ice, helped write uh, some of the Left Behind series. Talks about how do we accurately handle the word of truth. And he talks about interpretation. He says, literal interpretation of the Bible simply means to explain the original sense of the Bible according to the normal and customary usage of its language. How is this done? It can be accomplished only through 
The grammatical, according to the rules of grammar, historical, consistent with the historical setting of the passage, contextual, in accord with its context, method of interpretation. We believe in the literal translation of the word of God. And that takes into account the grammar, the literary form that it's in, and the historical context of scripture. Apart from that, you cannot handle the word of God accurately. If you start to take it out of its context, you're not handling it correctly. If you take it out of its historical context, you're not handling it accurately. If you don't understand the literary form that it is, it's an epistle, it's a gospel, whatever. You're not handling it accurately. We want to handle the word of God accurately because it's God's word. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It's his word to us. There are four hurdles, clearly, that need to be addressed. The language. Anybody say amen to that? Oh, Hebrew. I know shalom. (laughs) Where's John? John and Susie, they're always, right? Peace. I know a little Greek. His name is Spiros. You know, we, we, (laughs) I, I mean, you know, he's in heaven now, so I can, he can joke around about it. The language is tough, folks. The culture, what was going on at the time of writing, that's tough. There's some interesting factors there. What was happening in Ephesus when Paul wrote to the Ephesians? Why did he write to them? What was going on there? Philippi, whatever. The history of it. The geography of it. It's always fascinating when you start to see the geography. Those of you who have been to Israel, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You start to see uh, the Sea of Galilee. You start to see the different things that are going on there geographically, and it begins to shape how you read what was written. It's amazing. Principles of interpretation, literal, it means what it means. Even if it's using figurative language, the meaning of why it's being said We take literally. Last time I checked, I don't see any branches out here literally. But in John 15, he calls us branches. Well, what's the literal takeaway from that allegorical, figurative passage? It is that apart from him, we can do nothing. We take that literally. That's what he means. We don't have to read into it, try to figure it all out and... No, the the literal approach here. The historical. What did it mean to the people to whom it was spoken or written? Well, we get in all kinds of trouble. Especially when we begin to understand the Gospels. And it was written in many ways in a transitional period. We looked at this in Acts. A lot of the the Jewish ideology and thought processes were very pertinent then. We've got to be careful not just to read our thinking into it. We need to understand their thinking. I'll never forget talking to a group of students down in Florida. Unbelievable. About 50 of them. I was preaching, going at it, spitting. And I used an illustration about skiing. (laughs) And about two minutes into my illustration, I could tell I wasn't connecting a lick. They're looking at me like I'm nuts. And it suddenly dawned on me. I hadn't clarified what kind of skiing I was talking about. I was talking about snow skiing. They had never even seen snow. They thought I was talking about water skiing. And the way I described how you had to dress to go skiing just didn't relate. 
historical, grammatical, understanding the grammar. I know, I know, I hated English grammar myself. I know more Greek grammar than I do English. Synthesis. Scripture doesn't contradict itself. If you see something in James and it appears to contradict Romans or vice versa, you understand, wait a minute, there's nothing wrong with Scripture. It's how I'm viewing it. I need to make sure that I handle the Word of God accurately so that it's synthetic. And, of course, application, the so what moment. May I just encourage you in the application moment, the issue is what does the word of God say and how am I submitting and yielding and placing myself under the authority of the word of God? Because that's what true application really means. Second Peter chapter 3, Peter in writing about scripture and Paul's letters in particular says this, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. That ought to give us all encouragement. Peter's an apostle, and he's looking at Peter's writings going, whoo, oh, brain freeze. Brother Paul, what in the world do you mean by that? Which the untaught and unstable do what? distort as they do also the rest of what? The scriptures. What's Peter doing? He's giving authenticity to the fact that Paul and the letters that he wrote were scripture. They weren't just normal letters. They were from God. He says those who are untaught and unstable in their distortion of scripture do so to their own destruction. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a great quote and something on my mind many times as a pastor. We have somehow got hold of the idea that error is only that which is outrageously wrong. Let me give you an example. I don't believe in the virgin birth. I think most of us as evangelical conservatives would immediately recognize that and go, that, no, no, we do believe in the virgin birth. We spot that a mile away. He goes on and he says, we do not seem to understand that the most dangerous person of all is the one who does not emphasize the right things. Think about that. Chew on that. Emphasize the right things. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and following, he says, We've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us. By God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. Catch that? Taught by who? The Spirit. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. In other words, a person who is not a believer in Jesus Christ, who does not have the Spirit of God living within them, does not understand the truths of Scripture. Because they don't have the Spirit of God to teach them that internally. As a witness, their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Dwight Hunt says the Spirit helps them, believers, interpret God's word and make meaningful application. This latter work of the Spirit is called illumination. If we're believers here today, the Spirit of God lives within us. And when we hear the word of God, the Spirit of God uses the word of God in order to teach us and help apply the word of God into the very divergent, various circumstances of our lives. Love that. It's a work of the Spirit of God. There's a work of man to handle God's word accurately, clearly. It takes effort. 
We need to do it with respect and submission of the heart. There's a working of the Holy Spirit to illuminate the word to our hearts. As without the Spirit of God, there will never be a correct understanding of the Scriptures. Lost people need Christ. They need the Lord. They need the Spirit of God. They need the Spirit of the Lord within them. They need the mind of Christ in order to understand the Word of God. And that's our role, folks. We get to follow God in the midst of it. We get to share with them that they, too, can have hope. Because Christ died for them as well. No man is intelligent enough, diligent enough, schooled enough, or practiced enough to know, understand, or apply God's word in and of himself. Conversely, the man yielded to the Lord, teachable of heart and humble in spirit, can know the deepest things of God through his word by the means of the Holy Spirit. That is amazing. Look at the apostles. Look at the apostles. You must know what the Word of God teaches in order to understand what it means so that you can do what it commands. All of that is in the power and the authority and the ability of the Holy Spirit. Essential to our learning, to our growth, to our correct handling of the Word of God. I wanted to read, how many of you know Francis Schaeffer? Have you heard of him? Not know him. I mean, you've heard of Francis Schaeffer. If you, if you ever have a chance, look up some of his stuff, and I would encourage you to uh, take some time and look what he has to write. He's a phenomenally insightful guy. It helps that he's from Switzerland, because I am too, and I just think that's, you know, that's code for good. Francis Schaeffer in 1982 wrote a book, and he, and he said this. And I, I just, he's, he's talking about Jeremiah and the, the letter of Jeremiah and the attitude towards the word of God in that day. And he's relating it at that time in 1982, but I think what he wrote at that point is relevant to today. Men today do not perhaps burn the Bible, and the Catholic Church doesn't put it on the index any longer as it once did, meaning putting it to the side. But men destroy it in the form of exegesis, how they handle it. They destroy it in the way they deal with it. They destroy it by not reading it as written in normal literary form, by ignoring historical, grammatical exegesis, by changing the Bible's own perspective of itself as propositional revelation in space and time and history, by saying only the spiritual portions of the Bible have authority for us. I would say to you who call yourselves Bible-believing Christians, if you see the word of God diminished as it is in our day and are not moved to tears and indignation, I wonder if you have any comprehension of the day in which we live. If we as Bible-believing Christians can see God's word, God's verbalized propositional communication treated as it is so often treated and are not filled with sorrow and do not cry out, but don't you realize the end thereof? I wonder, do we love his word? How can we do it without being moved as Jeremiah was moved? How can we speak of judgment and yet not stand like the weeping prophet? With tears. Wow. What's the end thereof? Of not handling the word of God accurately. Of not recognizing that it's God's 
word? What is the end thereof? I would suggest we're seeing it today. Marriage redefined. Terrorism on the rise. Families broken down. Split apart. Generations coming up that have no respect or fear of God. That's what we're seeing, folks, when we begin to set to the side the infallible, inerrant, trustworthy word of God. Folks, we're called to make disciples. Amen? How can we make disciples if we're not careful to be disciples ourselves? And a disciple is simply a willing learner. A willing learner, willing to learn from the Lord, willing to get into the word of God, willing to be taught by the Holy Spirit using the word of God in order to say, this is the way I want you to walk, walk ye in it. How can we make disciples and tell people the hope that we have in Christ Jesus if we ourselves aren't walking in that? We're living in some day, friend. And I'll tell you, the rest of this year, as we walk through the Word of God and we talk about the beginnings and we talk about creation and we talk about Israel and the law, we talk about the church and grace, we talk about eschatology and the things that are going to happen, that are happening before our eyes, if we don't understand that this is the infallible, inerrant Word of God, that it is trustworthy and that we have a treasure. Now, what's the rest of this year even worth going through this? That I know that you believe in the word of God. Because I see it in your lives. I see the way you love one another. I see the way you want to serve. I see the way that you love God's gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful you're here today. How anti-cultural it is. (laughs) Praise God. Bless you. And may we all continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our precious Lord Jesus Christ. And may we hold this word, God's word, firmly and stand on it with boldness, knowing that it is God's word. Do you believe that? Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.